0: Welcome back to the 113th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories about progressives. We're going to talk about the era since Woodrow Wilson, we're going to talk about stopping child labor and taxing the rich, and our final article is going to talk about what the progressives think Biden should do with the debt ceiling and where he should cut and where he shouldn't. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into the daily debate. So, I've gone back and forth, I've had lots of different opinions about the progressive movement. And, you know, it too has gone back and forth. It's, you know, been popular at some points and it's gotten some condemnation at others let's just put it that way you know i want to ask is the progressive movement a net benefit or a harm to the political system is it good to have a different branch of the democratic party even some would argue that it, their views are so separate they are their own party i mean of course there is the democratic socialist party in the united states gaining some ground in states like new york nevada so on So is this a good pressure to have a third party? And if you want to throw it down there, tell me what you think about their views as a party and as a movement. But that's enough. Let's jump into our first story. This one comes from the New York Post. Late-stage capitalism? No, we're plagued by late-stage progressivism. So you can obviously see the perspective the author is coming from here. So he kind of goes through this article, and he's trying to highlight that the progressive, it's always been a talking point, that, oh, we're in late-stage capitalism, that this is the inevitable thing. This is how capitalism will end, because there are greedy people who want to take advantage of the materialism of a society that has been influenced by capitalism over years and years and years. And maybe I'm not being 100% fair to the progressive point of view. Maybe there is a more detailed explanation of the way they define late-stage capitalism. But that is how it ends up sounding. I listen to a few different progressive commentators, but, you know, they're very mainstream. Like, let's say Kyle Kalinske. I've watched a few Young Turks videos Uh, Jimmy Dore as well, and then, you know, Sam Cedar. even though sometimes he's not always super progressive. I've watched some of his content, and when they use this term, there is a understanding or at least a perception that you get about it that this is inevitable, and this author's trying to push back and say, okay, no, it's not actually late-stage capitalism that's causing the issues It's the progressive movement's ever-growing control. Now, that's one opinion. I don't necessarily know if I fully buy into everything the author's saying, but it is a position that we should definitely highlight before we have a more in-depth conversation about progressivism. So let's jump to this quote. Quote, blaming late-stage capitalism for everything from dating apps to the rise of Donald Trump has been a routine bit of hip lefty snark for some years now. It's a nod to the Marxist idea that the contradictions of capitalism will eventually lead to its implosion, replaced by the worker state utopia. And let's be clear, you know, he's being a little bit cutesy here, you know, the utopia, there's always this view of utopia, and people like to frame a lot of progressive ideas as working towards a utopia. Which, to be fair, there are elements of that. They have a grand vision of how things should work. But I think if you ask a lot of progressive people, they would say that a utopia is not possible. Some people would definitely say that. But I would say that a lot of them are realistic and realize that human beings are flawed. A utopia is not possible. But there is a system that can best help the worker. So I just wanted to point that out because we need to be fair here. We know this author's bias and we need to be fair to the progressive movement because some things they say, in my opinion, whack nuts. Some things they say, some arguments they make have a lot of strong points behind them that need to be addressed, not just oh, chalked up to their progressive and then ignored because that's not how a conversation should go in this country. That's not how we solve issues. By just looking at the other side, attributing the worst characteristics, the worst points to them, and ignoring their good ones. Quote, but as we, with so many left accusations, it's pure projection. In fact, we're suffering from the ills of late progressivism. Think about it. The real ascent to political power of the progressives in this country began with the election of Woodrow Wilson in 1912. His second term ended a little more than a century ago. The ideas he brought into the mainstream, above all, hatred of our constitutional system, stands in the way of the grand aims of a centralized, unchecked power wielded by enlightened technocratic administrators, absolutely dominant, or absolutely dominate, the thinking of today's progs." End quote. So, what he's trying to point out here is... When Wilson really came into power, he shifted the dynamic and the way that a lot of people look at politics in the United States. That's what he's arguing. And let's be clear, this movement had been going on for a long time, and it wasn't just progressives. You had different Democrats, Republicans, Independents, and Federalists, Anti-Federalists, who always debated the point, the question, of how much power should the executive had. Now, you know, it happened in many different forms over the years. There were lots of pushback. There was lots of giving in. Oh, yes, the president can do this. He's basically the ultimate authority. But Wilson saw the election to president as a basically a free blank check to do whatever they could implement in order to ensure that their vision was enacted in America. He greatly expanded the power of the executive branch and was a strong believer in the power that it held and that it could almost be limitless. And this is a key point about progressive politics. A lot of the conversation that follows today is about power. It's about power dynamics. If you look at some of their commentary about wealthy individuals it's not just the wealth that they have that they have accrued through working hard but the power and influence that that wealth gives them so a lot of their arguments and their problems with the system are framed around power and you can see the seedlings of that in Wilson's presidency in the way that he greatly expanded the powers of the executive and kind of went a little haywire at some points so let's talk about some of the things that this author doesn't like about wilson quote wilson also despised dissent ushering in sweeping laws restricting speech and infamously imprisoning socialist leader eugene debs simply for speaking out against america's entry into the first world war the senate's constitutionality mandated non-proportional representation vile oppression that stands in the way of progressive politics get rid of it too and in line with wilson's views when the senate dawdled on doing his will he called it voraciously a lot of old women and a little group of willful men the supreme court's refusal to be an ideological rubber stamp time to end the justices till we get what we want wilson's belief in the supremacy of the state's interests lines up nicely with the left's contempt for parental rights and for the drive to shut down parents out of deciding local school criteria, end quote. So you can see it's this kind of push and pull with the systems that are at play during his time and how, okay, you know, you're kind of getting in the way of my vision here, so we're going to have some sort of executive loophole. We're going to sign a bill that says because we're in wartime, we cannot take any dissent or we're going to attempt to pack the court, which Wilson never was able to actually do and never actually got a successful proposal for. But this author highlights his intellectual error, so to speak. FDR actually tried to do that when the court wasn't going his way and the Senate and the House were not having any of it. But you see the ideas that the author is playing with here in trying to highlight that Wilson and the progressive movement at the time were so sure that their view of the United States, their view of what should be done in the future, was correct, that when they got the mandate from the people, so to speak, I mean, if you were thinking in the terms of the Chinese emperor, it would be the the heaven of mandate. They were elected to this office. They obviously have a mandate given to them by the people to do what they want because the people like their policies. Otherwise, they wouldn't have elected them. And now they can use the power bestowed upon them to, in any way, shape, or form, to get what they want. And, you know, obviously there are restrictions. There was pushback from the Senate, from the Supreme Court, from the House. But you can see a lot of the seeds of this expanding of executive power. Let's be clear. Power of the executive was expanded before Wilson. We had plenty of extra departments and heads of large, different bureaucratic organizations before Wilson came into power, the executive had created new. Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? New cabinet members before Wilson came into office. And does the Constitution necessarily say that the president can do that? No, but you know it pressured Congress into doing so. So of course there has been play. But if you look over the 1900s and the early 2000s, the executive branch has just gained more and more power. Just look at one statistic. The amount of executive orders signed under each president. It went up a little bit between Clinton and then Bush, and it went up a little bit between Clinton, uh, Bush and Obama. It went up a little bit in Obama's second term. Then it jumped during Trump's term, and then it also jumped during Biden's term. So it's a slow, slow expanding of the power and rights of the executive branch, which all really started with a new perspective of what the executive is and the powers that can be bestowed upon him in the early era of the 1900s with this progressive movement. So you see how the author doesn't like progressives. You've seen how he highlights what Wilson's getting at during his time. So how is it affecting us today? Where do we see the... Seeds that were planted then, growing into full trees and bushes now. Quote, Fact is, America's ill today didn't arise from free-working markets, as the phrase late-stage capitalism implies. In fact, all of Marx's ideas about the future would prove to be false. What's working poorly is a government that's grown too ambitious whose experts lack the knowledge and wisdom to deliver on their dreams. The contradictions plaguing America in the West today aren't about capitalism. Rather, they flow from the progressive belief system, which professes to speak for the powerless, but somehow always, and only, ends up benefiting the powerful. Wokies can chisel Wilson's name off any buildings as they like, as happened at Princeton, of which he was famously served as president. Yet, it's still his century, and we're just living in it, end quote. And what I want to jump back to here is the comment about experts, because the author tried to hit on this earlier about a technocratic state where you have experts that we just lean on, we go to, we ask for opinions. And there was a elitist mentality that was ever present in the Wilson administration, which is, Oh, you no, no, no. You are a simple man. You don't have any experience to be gleaned from actually living in America and working in these different circumstances. We need to go to the experts. The people that have been to college for this have studied years and years and years. And, of course, there is a great deal of value to that. If someone studies economics for 40 years... And has gone out, done case studies, and has experience in their field, of course their opinion should be valid. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it instantly trumps somebody else's experience. Now, like I said, it should be valid and it should be weighed a little bit more heavily because they are an expert. But that just because they are an expert does not entitle them to the ability to control every aspect of policy. Like I said. An expert is great, but just because you're an expert, it doesn't mean that we have to follow you without thinking and criticizing and just go along with whatever you say. Now, you know, we've seen a lot of different opinions on this, especially during COVID. We saw a lot of people questioning the experts, some to people's benefit and some people questioned to other people's detriment. So obviously it's a mixed bag. But you can see the seeds that have been planted here. I've used this analogy a few times. But you can see the seeds that were planted in the early progressive movement. And it has definitely started to germinate now. Because we have a lot of faith in the U.S. government with experts. We turn to experts to explain everything. And while it's great, there is a lot of information. There is a wealth of knowledge that can be attained from the common man who has gone through life, who has experienced so many different things and has a wealth of knowledge and a little bit of wisdom to give back that the experts may not have thought of or may not have addressed. But that's enough to really set up and highlight the progressive movement's focus on power and their leaning on experts. And there are a few different points in there that we touched on. So let's go to a modern example of a progressive talking point. Because this will really highlight where they are today. Rather than this author's really, I don't want to say insincere, but negative point of view. This one comes from Common Dreams. Tax the rich to defeat the horrors of child labor. And for those of you who are not progressive fans and you're listening, you're like, Alex, this is so unfair. No one wants child labor. Of course I'm going to be a little bit more okay with agreeing with the progressives when it's on child labor, this isn't necessarily fair. But it is a current issue that we're facing that a lot of people have different opinions on. And I thought this Common Dream article takes a very interesting tact because it doesn't just say, okay, we need to eliminate child labor. It offers taxing the rich as one of the methods to actually do that, which is very, very interesting. And also it does highlight a few of non-progressive, arguments about what to do and the opinions that are held about child labor so this is a first quote that i want to jump to and it talks about how they're not actually addressing the issue or at least we're not here in american society quote americans social studies textbooks urgently need an update on child labor our textbooks since the middle of the 20th century have been applauding the reform movement that gradually put an end to the child labor horrors that ran widespread throughout the early industrial age. Now those horrors, here in the 21st century, are reappearing. The number of kids employed in direct violation of existing labor laws, analysts at the Economic Policy Institute said this past March, has soared to 283% since 2015, and 37% in the last year alone. Last week brought the alarming news that three Kentucky-based McDonald's franchises had kids as young as 10 working at 62 stores in three different states. Some of these under-working-age children were working as late as 2 a.m. So obviously, this, this is most definitely an issue that needs to be addressed. If you look at that, 2 a.m., what are these kids doing staying up until 2 a.m. at 10 years old? Maybe I was a little bit lucky that my parents were really strict, or maybe I'm lucky that I didn't have to work in order to pay off some bills for the family, or my family didn't make me work. But I was in bed by probably 10.30 when I was 10. I think that was the latest I was quote-unquote allowed to stay up. And maybe I would stay up until 11. But that would be the latest. At that point, I'd be tuckered out. 2 a.m.? And then these kids have to get up at 5 or 6 and then go to school? I don't know whether these kids are going to school or not. I didn't get any in-depth information about that in this article. But that is absolutely outrageous. And you can see that it's widespread throughout these franchises. So I think we can all agree this is not okay. Children should not be working like this. And, you know, maybe you could make an argument that, well, you know, if you wanted your kids to file some things for you or you wanted them to learn something on the job and it was a really easy job that wasn't dangerous, sure, fine. I guess I could hear that argument. I guess there could be some validity to it. Maybe teach them some discipline, the value of work when they're younger. But that doesn't mean that you put them in a work environment where they could possibly get burned by friars, where they could. Be harmed by some sort of industrial-sized equipment? No, no, no. That, that that's a hard line for me. I, you know, at the end of the day, that is unacceptable, and I think most Americans would agree. That's why we've seen a lot of conversations about this more recently. And the the question that we should be asking, not just oh, do we want or is it outrageous that kids are working in these facilities, but the other question that has to be asked is, why is this the case? Why are they doing this? And you have two different perspectives. You have one from the progressive wing, which would say they're doing this because it is capitalism. It's late-stage capitalism. They're trying to cut costs wherever they can, and they know that a 10-year-old is not going to push for as much money as someone who's a little bit older, who's been in the job market, who understands how it works, or has a resume that's a little bit longer that requires that the company pay them a little bit more money for their experience. And then you have the other side, which would most likely argue, I haven't seen many good arguments from the other side because this is a really hard thing to argue, that, well, we're trying to ensure that these kids have the opportunity to make money, and that they should have a semblance of discipline in their lives. And we need to make sure that they know what it's like to work. So starting them young at a job that's not that crazy, like a McDonald's, wouldn't be that bad. I have not heard that argument so much. There is a little bit of that pointed out here in the counter section of this article. So let's actually just read that, and then we can scoff at how outrageous it is quote how do cheerleaders for erasing protections for kids justify their anti-child labor law offenses jobs for the youngest among us they argue build character quote we have sheltered our kids so much that we've forgotten how to do one of the things we're all training them to do says dan zubach a republican state senator in iowa quote and that's how to work Over a century ago, in the initial push against child labor, no American did more to protect kids from the sophistry like that than noted educator and philosopher Felix Adler, the founder of the Ethical Culture Movement. In 1886, under that society's auspices, Adler sounded the child labor alarm before a packed house at Manhattan's famed Chickering Hall. So... You can see here, and that's the end of the quote, by the way, you can see here that the the counter argument is, well, kids need to know how to work. So start them a little bit earlier. And to be honest, I started working a little bit earlier than most. I had my workers permit and I I was doing some some work that was, you know, it was it wasn't backbreaking, but it wasn't necessarily the easiest thing in the world when I was a little bit younger I think there is a value to making sure that kids know how to work. It installs discipline. But 10 years old, that's that's too much, in my opinion. And also, I don't know what the oversight was like in these McDonald's. I'm assuming that it probably wasn't that great. Where I was working, it was, you know, with family. And they were watching me very diligently. It wasn't like they were just letting me do my own thing. They were more just trying to teach me that work was valuable and ensure that, okay, hey, you need to understand why we work, how to work efficiently, and honestly, just you know, start hustling a little bit. You're sitting around watching TV a little bit too much. I highly doubt that the people that are at this McDonald's are watching those kids so strictly because they're family members or they have a vested interest. No, the managers are worried about making money and they probably see them as another employee. Now, of course, I don't know all the details, and all the details have not come out. So it could be a different situation. Maybe the manager was their parent, and they were trying to get their kid to do a little bit of work while they were there staying until their parent got off from their shift. That's also possible. But it is kind of silly to say, oh, yeah, no, no, 10-year-olds, they just need to understand how to work. We're going to put them in a place that has a few different hazards, but no, no, they're going to learn how to work, so it's valuable. I, I think that's a pretty silly argument, and I have to come down on the, with the author of this Common Dreams article saying that there need to be more protections in place, just like Felix Adler pushed for back in 1887. Now, where I don't agree with Mr. Adler is one of the ways that he says that we should do this. So this is one of his solutions, and I'm I'm going to read directly from the article here. Quote, but Felix Adler didn't just campaign for laws to limit child labor. Lawmakers must also, he believed, limit incentives that drive employers to exploit kids. They must refuse to let the rich keep as much as they could grab by using tax caps of incomes on America's most financially favored. The specific vehicle he proposed for accomplishing that capping a tax rate of 100% on all income above the point, quote, when a certain high and abundant sum has been reached, amply sufficient for all the comforts and true refinements of life, end quote. So, do you see how broad that is? That is so, so broad. And this is the problem that I normally have with progressive policies. I take that back with a lot of different policies proposed by Democrats, Republicans, progressives, they are always so broad. They make the definition so wide that they can shoehorn things in later on. And it becomes a problem when you are not specific, when you do not directly define things as they are meant to be or as you want them to be, then you leave it up to interpretation in the future. Now, of course, I... There's some room there where some people could say that that's valuable because conditions change and sometimes you have to read into previous laws to enforce them in a new way. But that isn't necessarily how we should do it. We should have specific laws that are mandated at the time and if you want a new law that covers something else, rather than shoehorning it into an old one and creating an interesting interpretation in the courts, just... Get Congress or any legislator across the United States to pass a new law. Look at the Civil Rights Act. It was a beautiful piece of legislation that defined different groups that couldn't be discriminated against. But then, because of the kind of wormy language, it has allowed different people to interpret different protected classes that are not necessarily directly stated in the bill. And While it's great that we can now include different types of people in that legislation and we can say, oh, well, no, no, now it actually does cover gender identity. You can't be discriminated against for gender identity. I'll tell you now, a lot of the people writing that in the late 60s and 70s, they were not thinking about gender identity. They did not probably even know what that discussion was. That is a purely modern discussion or at least to the point that it's popular enough to become part of a modern discussion. And shoehorning it into the past is not the way to go about that. Just pass a new law. Pass a new law or even an official amendment to the law that gender identity is protected. Rather than this little haphazard, oh, well, actually some judges said that it's okay, and as Congress we agree with it but we're not going to actually pass an official amendment to the Civil Rights Act. We'll kind of shoehorn it into a different bill. And they're not using specific language. And you can see how this allows for the government to expand its reach and invade more auspices or invade more areas of American life. And when he says that there is a certain amount that is high and abundant and has allows for all the comforts and true refinements of life. What, is, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? If I'm a person making $100,000 per year, well, I can have all the refinements, I can have all the happiness. I could live, especially nowadays, I could live with probably two car payments, a small, small house that I'm renting, or a duplex that I'm renting out the other side. There are lots of ways to live frugally and abundantly at almost any, almost any, listen to what I am saying. Not any, but almost any income level that you could argue the tax should be. Oh, above five hundred thousand. But for a rich person, maybe they want that extra caviar. Maybe they need that special bed that helps them sleep because they're going into the office early and they have a different lifestyle. That w- could be argued that oh, this is what is actually correct. This is the amount of money that i need in order to live my way in a life in a way that is efficient and best suits me and allows for abundance and refinement it's just so broad and the argument that oh well actually if we just tax people who make a lot of money and we say you can't make more than this limit then they're not going to be incentivized to hire kids because oh well if they cut costs they can't actually keep that money yeah sure I guess that is a understanding of the issue. You're de incentivizing them from making more money. That that's fair enough. But what happens when they start trying to become more efficient and make that the same amount of money for less? And what I mean by that is make the same amount of revenue for less money. So therefore, their profit is larger. Because it's not just about the individual money that the CEO of the company gets. They want their company to thrive and survive. So they're going to try to be more efficient and get more profit from their revenue. So they're still going to hire cheaper workers. That includes children. And then also, what happens when you're limiting the amount, if it's not just the people that are involved, not the CEO and the CFO but now you make it about, well, oh, we're actually going to limit the profits of a company, we're going to tax this company at 100% rate over a certain amount of profits, then what encourages that company to expand, create more jobs, and hire more people, and slowly but surely aid their local economy? There are lots of flaws here, and I don't agree with Adler's approach. That's also because I don't agree with 100% tax for anything, for anybody, because, like I said, it de-incentivizes people from innovating, from pushing the boundary, because they don't actually get to retain any earnings. To be honest, maybe there are a few people that are very, very selfless and say, you know, I'm not going to make any money off this new patent for this government technology, but it's going to help my country. So I'm okay with that. There are probably a good part of the population that's okay with that. But a lot of people aren't going to be that way. They're self-interested. They're going to say, wait, hold on. You're not going to pay me for these extra few hours or I'm not going to be able to retain the earnings from these extra few hours I'm going to put in to make this patent for this government technology. Oh well never mind. No. You need to still have incentive structure there. People are greedy. We're naturally greedy. And I I know I'm making a descriptive claim about human nature, but I I do believe it. People are greedy. They need to have those incentives dangled in front of them. And the profit that they can earn from something and the income that they are able to attain is part of that. And if you put 100% cap, you're going to disincentivize a large portion of the upper echelons of people who would be pushing the envelope. Because a minimum wage worker at McDonald's is not going to be pushing the envelope. And that 100% tax rate over a certain amount isn't going to affect them. But it will affect the engineers, the aerospace engineers that are making big bucks in order to innovate for our nation. So I think that's where Adler's argument really, really falls apart. And then, you know, there's one last article that I will quickly, quickly highlight. This one comes from Salon. Pretty troubling. Progressives raise concerns over White House comment on spending cuts. And because I do want to keep this under 40 minutes, as I normally do for these podcasts... I will just highlight or talk about what the issue is. The progressives in this article that are speaking are pushing back against Biden giving in to any of McCarthy's spending cuts because they are largely for Social Security and Medicare and crucial programs that the progressives that want to keep in place. And the cuts that they offer are, oh, stopping subsidies for big oil companies— or prescription drug costs in Medicare, and you know that's a very interesting perspective going forward. But my question is, how much are we spending on big oil subsidies compared to how much are we spending on Social Security in Medicare? And to be to be hundred percent upfront, we do spend a lot of money on big oil subsidies. But a lot of those subsidies are not direct payments. They're actually cutting of costs. So it's not actually saying, oh, we are going to give this oil company a check for $500,000 to go out and speculate and find new oil. It's no, okay, we won't charge them as much in order to go and speculate on this land. So we're not actually spending... That much money on it. We're just getting less money from the purchase, which of course does affect the deficit. But if you look at Medicare or if you look at Social Security, we are actively spending money from the funds that we set up. Oh, well, I guess what it was 50 some years ago, if not a little bit longer. We're spending money from those funds. So cutting and reforming those actually limits the amount of money that is going out of the government rather than changing the amount of money that comes in. So you can see the progressives' perspective here, which is, no, 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 any sort of cut in benefits is a cut overall. That should count as a cut. Whereas the Republicans are saying, no, 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 we need to actually make sure that when we cut something, it does affect the money that we're spending going out, rather than the net effect that would be given from subsidies of big oil companies. So you can see where the divide is here. And when I was first reading this article, I went through the first few paragraphs, and what their solutions are buried a little bit deeper in. When they said, oh, no, no, we shouldn't be cutting at all. We we're afraid that Biden's going to give in to some of these cuts. The first thing I was thinking was, what? Are we just going to keep giving money out? Are we just going to keep spending at these current rates? And there is, of course, modern economic theory, borrowing against the future of the country. And that has been a talking point for a while now. But it does seem that progressives always, when you ask the question, where are we going to get the money? They're always joking, oh, well, you just have to tax this person. You have to have a wealth tax. Oh, you have to add a tax to every transaction that goes on on Wall Street, even if it's half of a penny, even if it's a tenth of a cent, then we could gain millions of dollars in tax revenue. But notice, the solution is always taxation. It is always the government taking more money from you. And that is a large, large majority of the issue that I have with the progressive movement. Because at the end of the day, where does it stop? Because once we implement one thing, I, let's let's say there's a validity to their argument that we need to keep some of these programs in place. You, there are some that I agree with, there's some that I don't agree with. But let's say, okay, We're going to do it. We're going to implement your way of funding it as well. We're going to do this specific tax. Well, the progressives, they'll find another issue, and I'm not saying they're going to go rummaging for one. There will be another issue that comes up because that's how society is. We address one issue. We move forward. We find another issue. We find a way to make sure that the government gets involved or addresses it in some major way. Think about AI regulation. Think about fracking. All these new industries and situations pop up. All these different social problems pop up. And then we have to solve them. Well, if the progressive solution is always, okay, the government's going to step in. It's going to somehow subsidize something. It's going to somehow create a program that will fix it. That needs funding. And if their solution is always to tax, then eventually we will just get to a point where we're giving up all our money in order to solve all of the problems. I do not think that is a tenable end. Like I said before, it's about incentives. If people can't keep their money, no matter how satisfied they are by society, by the programs that the government puts in place, I think that is untenable because people are greedy. It will just lead to stagnation rather than growth, innovation, which is what's needed nowadays as we face a ever more troubled and, let's just say, divided world. So that's my opinion on it. You can see where I fall down on a lot of these different issues. Thank you for listening. It's a little bit longer than normal, so let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the animal rescue site. Farm cat loves hitching rides on his horse friend. You know, and some people, you know, they can ride horses. You know, to be honest, I'm not not one of those people. I have not done it, and I don't know if I would enjoy it or not. But I could never imagine that a cat was going to beat me to that milestone in my life. Quote, animals can form close bonds with those outside their own species. Just take Tony Stark the cat and Thor the horse, for example. They're so different, and yet they're best friends, end quote. And, you know, they both seem to enjoy this process, by the way. Tony, you know, he's getting a free ride around the farm. He gets to just relax. And then Thor he gets to carry something a little bit lighter for a change, which, you know, seems to be a good dynamic. Quote, A cat may find comfort and warmth in the horse's stable, and the horse may enjoy the company of a feline friend who can help keep the rodents and pests away. There have been multiple stories of cats and horses forming relationships, including cats who ride on horses or rescue animals who become unlikely friends. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of Thor and Tony Stark, you can find them in the link below the like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the Spotify podcast, Google podcast, Podvine, and Pocket as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post the link to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for YouTube. And also now, I believe we are active on Rumble, A lot of the videos are still porting over, but the whole catalog will be on there very soon. If you want to watch on Rumble rather than YouTube, go on over there, subscribe, and give the video a like. All right, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.